Welcome to Bipolar Inquiry, drafting and crafting bipolar consciousness since 2016 by philosophizing, relanguaging, and harvesting mania's special messages, meaning visions, extraordinary experiences, ideas, insights, superpowers, possibilities, synchronicity, and parallel worlds. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information discussed on the show is not medical advice. Now, let's get started with this episode. definitely feeling more blah as the days go on. I think it's a good idea to get out of the house. I feel this discontent like just living in a room in a basement suite and waiting for some kind of security isn't good enough. And yesterday I watched a TED talk by Tim Ferriss called Why It's Important to Map Your Fears or something about fear setting. Why fear setting is more important than goal setting. And I recommend that talk for sure and I'll probably listen to it again and attempt to map some of my fears because there's definitely some fear preventing action right now. And after watching that, I felt like inaction is more costly than action, even if there is some fear there. So I think I'm just going to start some kind of business, even though I don't know what I'm doing, because the cost of that would just be perhaps the waste of money involved in the process of setting it up, which isn't that much, I don't think. And I could learn a lot along the way. And I also made a playlist today called Omnipolar Consciousness. And I think I'll add videos there that I watch and that I feel like are good to watch again for myself or maybe for other people because a lot of people say some really good stuff. So why repeat what they say? Obviously, I wouldn't repeat what they say. I might extrapolate a little bit on what they say but I don't want to do too much of that because I also came across a website called dailystoic.com and I came across this website because Tim Ferriss talked about stoicism and I know the word stoic but I'd never really heard of stoicism so I looked it up and it's interesting because it says that it's more about action than words So to me, it's a sign that I need to get more with action than with all these words. And I think I'll still say words, but there needs to be action. So forget about all the words that I'm typing up for later and just say words, but related to the actions I'm doing now. What I'm saying is I created too many words to actually catch up with it. So I need to utilize the principle of infinity and just realize that another infinity will come out of a different trajectory of action. And exploring this whole aspect of action. And something else interesting that happened this morning was I got an 
email from Jamie Wheel because I'm on his mailing list regarding flow courses and things like that. And the heading of the email was a little less conversation, a little more action. And that's actually a song that I sang to myself. I just sang those two lines and maybe another line, but I don't know why that song came in my head and I made a note to sing a line or two of it. And then this morning, there that was in my inbox. So I think the universe is just telling me to get with action because that's a pretty unprobable synchronicity because I sort of wrote down that song to myself to sing a line or two to tell myself a little less conversation a little more action and then I did sing it and then this morning that was in my email box so I'm definitely resonating with Jamie Wheel and Stephen Kotler and what they're doing and I'm continuing to read the book Stealing Fire which is really incredible if I read it with my own context and extrapolations in mind and I could go crazy extrapolating that whole book maybe that's something that would be more interesting to do with somebody so if somebody wants to extrapolate the book Stealing Fire together let's do it meaning extrapolate it to the map consciousness context and the omnipolar transconscious context and I'll put a little picture in of that here more from Daily Stoic it talks about how judgments are based on actions and not words so I've created a lot of words and the actions that I've done, they're there for sure, like deciding to leave my peer support job and then just live my dream of going to California and then living the dream of coming off the meds. So those are definitely actions, but now what? And I feel like sharing this conversation lately, I feel like. I don't want to just be secure or wait for security. I just want to share it. So I'm going to create the business so I can just go about sharing it and go from there. So action, I'm going to put a quarter on the ground right now. I know it's a small action, but it's something of putting something out there for someone else to pick up. And I will imbue it with the intention that that person live a magical life. It's sort of like that thing that I heard Matt Kahn say, give your action the highest reason why or something. Like, I brush my teeth to save the children in China or something like that. So yeah, I'll just kind of go with that. So I wonder if the things that I talk about, I can make them partly actionable at the same time or at least on the same day. So maybe in that way I can talk about actions and not just words. I'm not sure. I'm trying to get my brain oriented around this. And I feel like I could be more in that space of action if I had some more 
currency of some kind, but maybe that's just a belief and I'm not sure, maybe it's limiting me. And the Daily Stoic also says one of the principles is to practice what you fear. Spend a couple days of the month in a state of poverty away from one's bed and clothes or wear, the, wear your worst clothes. Well, fortunately, because of my label of bipolar disorder, I've spent many days away from the comforts of things and in the psych ward in the same clothes that I've worn for days and days upon end without showering, no comfort, terrified, feeling like a homeless person before I go into the psych ward. So I kind of already know what worst case scenario is like or pretty close to at least so I don't know why I'm so afraid to take action when I'm in a space that is somewhat okay. Maybe I'm trying to cling on to that. And the Daily Stoic also said, there is no good or bad to the practicing Stoic. There is only perception. And we control perception. And that's really interesting. And they talked about an example of saying X happened or then adding an extrapolation of X happened so that means it's the end of my life. So not adding that second bit. They're actually saying don't extrapolate that. So maybe I've done too much extrapolating and not enough acting. And I know that's true and I can see why though because I was still in the mental health field. So now that I'm out of that and I'm not taking the meds, do I feel safe to act again? Or do I feel like my actions are gonna be perceived as mental illness or something? I think there's definitely a fear there that my actions will just lead me to the psych ward, but maybe inaction and vegetating will lead me to the psych ward. So on Daily Stoic, they talk about tying one's perception to dispassion and then everything becomes an opportunity. And they talk about turning obstacles into opportunity. And the guy that writes the blog, Brian Holiday, wrote a book about that. So it could be something interesting to consider. And they talk about an example of Alexander the Great, who conquered the world and has his name all over the map. And then they said that one time he got drunk and got in a fight with his best friend and accidentally killed him. And to me, this is a really profound example. And then they shared that perhaps it matters little if one's name is emblazoned on the map if one loses perspective and hurts those around them. And that resonates with me because I know there's this sense sometimes in map consciousness that I felt like I have a mission to fulfill or something or something to do on this earth and then sometimes the people around me can actually feel like they're in the way or they're an obstacle so this whole obstacles is opportunities thing is interesting to me and are they really obstacles it feels like they wouldn't understand what I want to do and why because family members, for example, would want me to perhaps design a cozy life where I can stay sane. But that's actually not going to lead me to sanity. That's what I'm feeling since I got back, is this coziness is not going to do it. And it's not cozy, it's uncomfortable. But that's a really important point, though, to remember that.
not to hurt the ones around me. Because when I was PMSing, I was feeling like I needed space and there was TV noise. and So I don't know how to reconcile that. These things that feel like they're hurting my nervous system, how do I communicate that as to not hurt those around me? But still be able to get my needs met in terms of what affects my nervous system. And I forgot to say that when I saw that email heading this morning of a little less conversation, a little more action, it was actually a majigger, a magic trigger, a majiki. I gotta remember to use my words when those things happen in reality. And to go with that, I actually am going to start playing the lottery just the same numbers every week to give the universe the opportunity to provide abundance for what I might want to create. And then I came across a video on my YouTube opening page on a channel called Big Think and it's called something like Neuroscience Perception and the Confirmation Bias and the man speaking's name is Bo Lotto. Now hopefully Lotto, that's a sign, I just talked about Lotto. Maybe Bo is beautiful or something. So maybe I'll have a beautiful lotto win. And he was talking, and I don't know if he talks in all the videos, but it was really, really, really interesting. And I recommend watching that video. So I added it to the playlist Omnipolar Consciousness. And just what he was talking about was really fascinating. He was talking about creativity being seeing differently. So I wonder how I can create seeing differently because right now I don't feel that creative. I feel like I'm seeing the same thing. I'm in my environment or just not feeling creative. I don't want to say too much about the outside factors because I know that it's not really anything to do with that. I can blame it on my surroundings or being around family members who might be putting certain energies towards me to keep me in a perspective of wanting to ensure my own safety, whatever that means. But I know that there's something a lot more powerful that can break through that really easily. So that's just an excuse. So how can I create seeing differently? And I've had downloads of so many insights but can I switch to having a download of actions? Just action after action after action. And another interesting thing he talks about is how the brain really tries to stay in certainty. And it will stay in something certain even if with new information it is kind of ludicrous to do so. It prefers the certainty of a pattern or something like that. And the video explains this very well. But then he says that creativity or new perceptions can only happen in uncertainty. So there's this pull between certainty and creativity. And creativity has nothing to do with certainty. And he talks about how it begins at I don't know. And I've talked about that a lot too. It's really important to remain in that I don't know space. So I really like that video. It, it sums up nicely 
a lot of the things that I've been yammering on with myself about. And since I am so forgetful, I need these kind of reminders daily, so I'll probably watch that video again. And he also talks about old assumptions, and I was thinking about how map consciousness is a state of uncertainty, where all assumptions are called into question, not because we're actually questioning them, but we actually see our assumptions playing out, and also that we have no assumptions, and that creating new assumptions immediately can open up a whole new range of possibilities that we never even imagined were possible. And he talked about how the brain only does this in little steps, and I'm not sure about that because when something happens to someone and they go into map consciousness, it's a huge step. But that's usually thought of as a pathology. But what if this huge step in creativity isn't seen as a pathology? Maybe this huge step into creativity and this uncertainty is what is the suspension of the ego, which allows for new perceptions to be integrated. It's all very intertwined and complex. He then says something about how the next likely possibility is determined by one's assumptions. So assumptions change the sphere of possibility, or however he worded it. So then it's interesting how in map consciousness, all of our assumptions are suspended when the ego gets suspended, and that's partly why we feel so free and like we have such a expansive range of possibilities for the next action. And I'm actually seeing now that it feels like we can get so much done in that state of map consciousness because we're actually identifying with consciousness and consciousness can get a lot more done in action than the linear ego and acting in that way. So it's actually seeing that consciousness is that which creates and so in that space when one is having visions and feeling like one can do so many things and so many things are possible, consciousness is actually affecting one's morphogenetic field or morphogenic field to make those things possible in terms of how other people will respond. So in that space, people are going to respond differently and help make those visions possible interesting I can see what I'm saying but I don't know if I'm describing it very well it's a different type of action so can one get into that space of consciousness where action becomes more effortless
last in. I just got this huge book in the mail. And there's somebody close to me who is on the spectrum who I see as an incredible genius. So I'm curious about reading this book and I read the inner flap and part of it says, Silverman also explores the game-changing concept of neurodiversity. The idea that neurological differences like autism, dyslexia, and ADHD are not errors of nature or products of the toxic modern world, but the result of natural variations in the human genome. The ramifications are vast. As we begin to understand more about how these variations can convey unusual skills and aptitudes, we will need to re-examine our education system and, and initiate a deep cultural change that recognizes and celebrates a wider range of forms of human intelligence. Making the convincing case that neurodiversity is the commonality that makes us human, Silverman maps out a path for our society towards a world in which people with learning differences have access to the resources they need to live happier, healthier, and more secure, and more meaningful lives. This groundbreaking viewpoint will change not just the way we talk about autism, but also the way we think about creativity and innovation. And I would extend what he says here about neurodiversity, including autism, dyslexia, and ADHD, even to something like bipolar disorder, so-called bipolar disorder, it's the brain changing in midlife or partway through life to learn in a different way. And if this book talks about creativity and innovation, I'm sure it will have a lot of extrapolations to do with bipolar. Let's see if bipolar is in the index. Unfortunately, no but I think it will be talking about the same thing even if he's not intending to. The other thing I got in the mail today already is the Muse Brain Sensing Headband. Meditation made easy. So I partly got this to see if it might help people like me because I understand that having a quiet mind is very important because there can be periods of time where the mind is really, really, really not quiet. To the mind that is still, the whole universe surrenders. So maybe that's a clue. In map consciousness, sometimes we have a lot of thoughts, and in order to allow the universe to surrender to us instead of us having to surrender to the behavior police or the psychiatric system, we need to work on having a quiet mind. This is what it looks like. I'm going to download the app and see what happens. This is really exciting. I'm going to predict that I get into meditation really quickly. I don't know if it's true. This will be the first time I'm able to see. And I just downloaded the Muse app and I noticed another app called Muse Monitor.
which actually gives the raw brainwave data. I thought I would have to hook this thing up to my computer to get that stuff going, but somebody created an app for that. It's $21, but I'm curious. I want to know what my brain is doing when I'm having insights. I want to know if there's more gamma waves. I want to know if there's less beta waves. I want to know. I want to know. I want to know. This is going to bring the experiment to the next level. Level. And today, I woke up feeling like I didn't even want to get out of bed. But not super, like I didn't. I knew I was going to. But I just felt kind of blah. And then I went out for lunch with a friend. And then I went for a mini rollerblade at this one park. And then I went to another park and walked there for like two hours. And I love that park. It's so beautiful. And on the way back home, I was just driving and singing along to Boney M. One of those bands my parents passed along to me, fortunately. So the day felt really long and rich and meaningful. So it's interesting how it can change flavor. It felt like an omnipolar day. This morning I'm going to try my Muse headband for the first time. And it came with some cute little hair ties. To tie my hair out of the way to wear the headband. So I charged it, I plugged it into my computer. That looks about right. So now I'm going to pair it with the app and see what happens. I'll be back. So here are some screenshots after I did my first initial five-minute meditation that it walked me through. It walked me through the setup and then I did the five-minute meditation. And the graph shows where my brain was active, neutral, and calm. And I think I did pretty good for the first time. I earned 487 points, calm points, and earned four birds and did four recoveries. I think the times that my brain was active there was a little human being dropping stuff on the floor above me. So that could have been it. I'll have to try it again when there's no noise around me at all. And then the dots show where there are recoveries. And then the little green lines show where I earned the birds, which apparently is an extended period of calm. So I think that's good for a first try. I like the data that it shows. And this screen shows how they do the calm points calculation. So I'm interested to see how that adds up the next time I try it. And this screen will show all my session data and show a graph of how I get better over time. And it, the little bar shows the calm time and the session time. So we'll see how that changes over time. And this shows how I can tie it into the Apple Health app. And I turned on the Mindfulness Minute 
and the other thing. And here is where I can access my mindfulness data as well as my activity data. And there it is, my first mindfulness data. Looks just like the step counter in a way. And onto the Muse Monitor app now. This app was $21, but I think it's really cool. It was definitely worth it. And I don't know what all this information is talking about, so I will talk more about it as I learn what it's talking about. But here are just some screenshots of the different graphical representations that it gives of the brainwave data. In the first one, it gives delta, theta, alpha, beta, and gamma in decibels, and I don't understand that at all. And then this next one shows the brainwave frequencies in hertz, represented by this sort of picture, which is interesting. And then there's another one that shows different waves in microvolts, and that is labeled by electrode. There are four different electrodes on the headband on the front, and I think there are two on the back as well, but I can't remember. This last one is theta, delta, alpha, beta, gamma, shown by the different colors, and is represented in hertz, and I find it interesting because these are four different snapshots in time, yet those peaks in beta and gamma stay really consistent. So it seems like it's almost like my brain fingerprint. And that's just a guess. I don't really know what it's showing exactly. But all the little smaller peaks, they change. But the big one in the green section between 8 and 24 hertz is always there. And then that first one in the orange as well as the three peaks in the black section. They stay somewhat consistent. So I wonder if that's me. I wonder if that's my brain. And I'll have to try that again on a different session and then also compare it to other people to see and then also learning the language of what this is actually trying to tell me to see if it's right with my limited knowledge and intuition. So, so far this is really, really fascinating for me. It's my brain getting to see what my brain is doing. And I think I started talking about these in my next video, so I might talk a little bit more and insert the pictures again based on editing. So yeah, loving this thing so far. Can't wait to try it on someone else to see if maybe this is my brain fingerprint. And it also looks like there are... A number of gamma peaks. There are four gamma peaks, one beta peak, and then, and I'm saying peak as in over three. I don't really know where things should be or how it really works, but it looks like there's some gamma going on, and I was just sitting there watching this line thing happen when I switched from screen to screen on these different types of visualizations on the Muse recorder app or Muse monitor app. I'm going to try some extrapolating on the go. I'm reading the book Neurotribes by Stephen Silberman and it's really fascinating and 
Ascendant says, many autistic adults are not exercising the strengths of their atypical minds at companies like Apple and Google. Instead, a disproportionate number are underemployed and struggling to get by on disability payments. And to me, this reminds me of how through a process of map consciousness or trans consciousness or omnipolar consciousness that is usually labeled something like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, our minds become atypical minds that have strengths and gifts that are not recognized and not utilized. And so many of us end up on disability. I feel like kids can be born on the spectrum and have atypical minds or we can actually have some kind of crisis where our ego structure breaks down and then we acquire an atypical mind and ideally we would be able to find the gifts and where that fits instead of just trying to recover so to me behavioral intervention in something like autism is the same equivalent as recovery in something like bipolar trying to force the brain to be like everybody else and missing diverting energy into figuring out what it is the brain is wanting to do differently and that was on page 15 and another part on page 15 it says that by sharing the stories of their lives, they discovered that many of the challenges they face are not symptoms of their autism, but hardships imposed by a society that refuses to make basic accommodations for people with cognitive disabilities as it does for people with physical disabilities such as blindness and deafness. I would say the jury's still out on whether it's a cognitive deficiency. It's probably reallocation of cognition and its resources but I don't know if it's a deficiency and are we all supposed to be thinking and seeing and experiencing life in exactly the same way and none of us are but with the ego whoever operates based on that can pretend that we're all operating in the same way by manifesting outward behaviors that are similar and meanwhile boiling inside so if the normal way of thinking is cognitively effective. I don't think that's true. I would say even a so-called normal brain is cognitively deficient in many ways. And he also mentions that newly diagnosed adults were engaged in a very different conversation about the difficulties of navigating and surviving in a world not built for them. And I've talked about that with myself about how after going through a crisis and having the ego structure suspended, the world is no longer built for me or whoever. It's built for that ego structure. So if that isn't intact, then naturally the world is going to be a very difficult place because it is built for that structure which is competitive and driven for success and based on so many things. So this is a real-time extrapolation. Usually I make notes and write them down and come back to them later, but I'm thinking that that process isn't good to do anymore because it just leads to a huge pileup of notes and I have 100 pages of typed notes that I don't know if I'll ever get to and it doesn't really matter. If anyone ever wants access to that, let me know. It's, I don't know if it's interesting, but 
as I read this book, real-time extrapolation is a complement to what someone else has written that very cleanly extrapolates to my own context and what I've created. And this book, the pages are full of so much of that. It's almost like being able to write a book based on someone else's book, but just changing the words, and it's the same book. For example, on page 16, it says, Autism, dyslexia, ADHD should be regarded as naturally occurring cognitive variations with distinctive strengths that have contributed to the evolution of technology and culture rather than mere checklists of deficits and dysfunctions. So one could change that sentence to be bipolar consciousness or omnipolar consciousness, trans consciousness, map consciousness should be regarded as naturally occurring cognitive variations that can happen partway through life with distinctive strengths that have contributed to the evolution of XYZ. We probably don't even know what that contribution is because it's just seen as a pathology and we're told to believe it to be a pathology and then we no longer continue to think for ourselves and discover for ourselves and think differently for ourselves. On the inside cover of this book on neurodiversity and autism, it says, thinking smarter about people who think differently. And why should we not be allowed to change the way we think or the way we see the world partway through our life? Why should that be seen as some kind of pathology? So I like how this book is not saying that autism is a pathology. I extrapolate that to my own context. And then the next sentence, the idea of neurodiversity has inspired the creation of a rapidly growing civil rights movement based on the simple idea that the most astute interpreters of autistic behavior are autistic people themselves rather than their parents or doctors. And I would say that's the same for bipolar, what's called bipolar disorder. Nobody really asks us what's happening. They just interpret our behaviors and say it's a pathology. They don't ask us to interpret our own behaviors. They just tell us to report and there's no dialogue around it. So that's why I engage in dialogue with myself. And then it goes on to talk about a story about someone named Amelia Baggs who post posted a video on YouTube called In My Language. And it talks about how she shares how she can type but she doesn't really speak and then she's doing a bunch of stuff at the same time like bobbing a slinky and rubbing her face in a book or something and they say that a clinician would say she's exhibiting self-stimulating behavior one of the classic signs of autism but in the second part of a video called a translation Bags makes it clear that she's not sharing these intimate glimpses of her life to, as a plea for pity. Her intent is more subversive, celebrating the joy of her existence on her own terms. She says, my language is not about designing words or even visual symbols for people to interpret. She explains, it's about being in constant conversation with every aspect of my environment, reacting physically to all parts of my surroundings. Far from being purposeless, 
The way that I move is an ongoing response to what is around me. And that really resonates with me because I feel like when in map consciousness, it's similar. One is in this profound connection with the moment and is reacting with what is around one at the time. And that's why it's so random and supposedly chaotic and synchronous because we're just really synchronizing with what our eyes are seeing. And I've talked a lot about this, how it's about perception and action. And that doesn't really go with the way the ego is designed to ruminate about things, think about things, be thinking about something else when doing this other thing, not really in touch with what one is doing. So I feel like this process of autism and the process of transconsciousness or that whole structure breaking down has a similar something in that children who develop autism or however it works they never have the chance to develop to early adulthood and learn all the gestures and behaviors of so-called normality and I'm not saying that's what normal normal is I'm just saying for example and then that whole structure breaks down but one still has access to be able to move in those ways but one still becomes hypersensitive to a lot of things so it's the same type of consciousness but children with autism never experienced supposed normal consciousness they weren't able to be conditioned to behave in all the supposedly normal ways but it's the same type of consciousness where one is just responding to what's around one and I thought about this the other day I was thinking about what would that kind of life look like what would it look like if we had a blank slate in our mind and we still could move in all the ways that we learn to, but then we no longer had all that conditioning of assumptions and all that content in our mind. If we were just dropped somewhere, what would our life unfold as? It would be completely different because we don't have those programs operating, all those assumptions. And I wonder if I could design my life in that way. I'm not sure it's possible but I see a lot of the commonalities with autism it's seemingly just not having this ego structure of the unwritten rules of society like Temple Grandin might say or a term that I learned recently at this course called the invisible curriculum that we learn in school around the social order and and a lot of school is about that and not really about about this learning and learning how to learn so it seems like there's a learning without the invisible curriculum and the invisible curriculum isn't real and I don't really want to go into it right now but it's a contrivance so that's partly what disappears in somebody who goes through a trans-conscious or map-conscious experience is that invisible curriculum is no longer there and one is able to operate freely based on one's own perception and action. Unfortunately, children with autism didn't have those 
Jester has developed to be able to move around freely in society without whatever, but this is really hard to describe. What I'm trying to point to is that it seems like we as human beings might need to consider learning how to operate without this structure because children are being born without it and not able to acquire it and it's not even a real structure it's a cage in a way and we all want to be released from that cage so is there a way to learn how to operate without the cage because any one of us could be released from it at any time or have a child born that isn't able to develop that cage of premeditating everything that they do. And in that way, and I hope that my self-dialogue with myself is a way to celebrate my own existence on my own terms. And I like how this book is pointing to how they're spending so much effort looking for the cause and and trying to fix it and behavioral intervention. They're doing the same thing in so-called mental illness, looking for interventions and ways to fix the problem and they're not seeing that there are gifts. And part of me talking so much to myself is just acknowledging the gift of having access to so many words and language creation. And I'm wanting to get away from that because I'm seeing that words are not action so much but it seems like if we're less able to operate in the world of words we're less able to take action because words are scary and look at how sensitive a lot of autistic children are and how sensitive a lot of people with mental illness labels supposed mental illness become Yet we're not designing a world that is sensitive to those sensitivities because the majority in this supposed normal consciousness don't sense those sensitivities that are causing a buildup of allostatic load. But everyone else's allostatic load is building up at the same time and they could crack at any time, meaning their ego structure could, could break. And that's the structure that keeps all of these aspects of life seemingly not important in terms of overstimulation and things. And the gentleman who wrote this book attended something called Awe Treat, which is a retreat organized for autistic people by autistic people. And they talk about how in a social environment carefully constructed to eliminate sources of sensory overload and anxiety while maximizing opportunities for people on the spectrum to simply relax, enjoy being themselves, and make connections with one another. It'd be cool to make a retreat for bipolar people and eliminate those aspects that we are sensitive to as a neurotribe and maximize creativity. And I talked about and other aspects too, but I've talked about how if I ever did create something like a respite, I wouldn't want to just create a respite for for decompressing from all those sensitivities, but also create a creative space to augment the gifts. Because if we're always just going out into the world and then building up our stress and then breaking down, and then 
doing that cycle over and over, it's again just trying to intervene and recover and not actually discover. So if I ever created some kind of something, it would be a discovery learning community to learn and discover for oneself what one's own unique capacities are. Because each person that goes through this is a unique piece of the puzzle and maybe I can talk to myself for hours on video and whatever, but other people have other gifts. And if we got together, we might really be able to create something. And he says that after just four days in autism land, the mainstream world seemed like a constant sensory assault. And it is. And I feel that too. I'm struggling with the sound of the TV being on and the buzzing of a mini fridge. So certain sounds just really bother me. So I need quiet. I'm at a really quiet park and I'm probably one of the only ones here. I feel like I want to email this guy and ask him to consider the neurodiversity of people who are labeled with mental illnesses. If we can be two and developing normally and speaking and then all of a sudden lose our speech and be on the autism spectrum, why can't it be considered that we can be 19 and developing normally and then end up on some kind of spectrum other than what is so-called normal? Why can't we imagine that we might become neurodiverse after becoming neurologically perversed into being what we aren't, being so similar to everybody else? And this book has made the point that kids are also different when they're on the autism spectrum. Well, maybe we're all really different but we've just been conditioned to be so similar. This feels kind of like information overload already. It just really hurts that my tribe of people are called cognitively deficient and defective and all those things instead of thinking in terms of neurodiversity and new gifts and that our brain can become almost a blank slate at any time and we can relearn things. But when we're so busy trying to fix things and recover and focus on pathology and intervention, we're not allowing something new to flower. I read a tweet yesterday about how there's gonna be a conference on cognitive remediation. And I don't know so much about that term, but it's something to do with how people with labels of schizophrenia and other psychotic disorders tend to have cognitive declines over time as a result of their illness. And what pisses me off royally about that is they never say anything like, these people have been on these mind-numbing, brain-altering drugs for however many years and they never say well that's what causes part of the supposed cognitive decline they just say it's cognitive decline as a result of their illness and I don't believe that for one second because I've experienced five episodes of psychosis yet I don't feel any kind of cognitive decline 
and I was on medications for six years and I was never on antipsychotics long term, only for short periods of time when I had the psychosis happening or whatever it was, I'll just call it psychosis for now. And then once that was over, I was no longer on those antipsychotics. I feel like it's not good to be on antipsychotics daily, but they generally do that. If people have a psychosis, then they are given daily antipsychotics indefinitely instead of just given antipsychotics when there's actual psychosis-like things happening. And then the rest of the time, allowing the brain to recover from being on those drugs. There's studies out there that show that being on those drugs for any more than two weeks is detrimental. And there's studies that the long-term outcomes are better for people who don't take that kind of stuff on a daily basis. And yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there like that. Yet there's this big thing around cognitive remediation, how to get some of that cognitive capacity back. It's like taking it away by drugging someone and then saying, we're going to put you through this little computerized course so you can get some of your cognition back. I'm tempted to go just because I almost want to be a spy. I want to hear what they're saying about us. Because I don't have a label of schizophrenia, but it says schizophrenia and other psychotic disorders. And I have bipolar disorder, supposedly, a psychotic disorder. I've experienced psychosis five times and I don't agree that that's what causes the cognitive decline. I think it's the over medication, being on extra heavy, too much medication for long periods of time that messes up the brain. And it would mess up the brain too because it definitely limits our epi gestures. Our movements, our possibilities in life, and that's what keeps the brain growing and and working and learning, not sitting, watching TV, drugged out, smoking cigarettes and drinking coke. So there's just so much to say on that and I don't even know where to begin. But yeah, maybe just going undercover and investigating what are they saying? Because there'll be scientist type people and clinicians trying to sell us our cognition back to us after taking it away with all the drugs. So I'm kind of tired of being referred to as cognitively defective or deficient. And I'm tired of people being pointed to as that when anyone's brain would shrivel up if they were put on toxic mind-numbing meds for years upon end, which limits their ability to go out in the world and experience life. The brain is a reflection of our experience in daily life. So if we're not doing that much, it's going to shrivel up. Give any so-called normal person those same drugs. Where's their trials on normal people taking these drugs long term to see if they have the same cognitive deficits, supposedly, as somebody who's taking the drug long term with a label? 
So how have they determined that it's not the drug itself that's shrinking up and destroying the brain? It's very toxic. So if they put someone who doesn't have something called schizophrenia on those drugs for 10 years and then check back and see how well they're doing cognitively, I don't think that they're going to be doing very well. So that's part of my point and that pisses me off that they never point to that because they don't have a big group of people with a label of schizophrenia who aren't taking any drugs. They're all drugged up and then it's seen as that's worsening of their illness and that's what really pissed me off about my hospital stay in April 2016 is they put me on something that made me so much worse and had I been on that for a long period of time I wouldn't be able to string two words together. So to go with that I actually tried my Muse headband this morning and I took some screenshots and so I will add those in and do some voice over commentary because I can't really remember what they are now until I edit the video and it was really interesting I did the little five minute beginner meditation and I earned four birds and I got a lot of good points I don't know what most people's is like on the first go and I'm gonna try that on some of the people that I know to see what theirs is like to kind of compare because apparently I have this really defective bipolar brain and also I bought the app called Muse Monitor and it gives access to the raw data which is really cool and I don't really exactly know what I'm looking at but it seems cool to begin with and I do need Microsoft Excel to be able to graph some of it, I think. So I might try that at some point. So this is just the initial looking at it, trying it, and seeing what the app is like. But I have no real knowledge about what it's trying to tell me, or I don't know this language of the brain. But it was really interesting to have my brain see what my brain is doing according to this device. And one thing I'll be interested in seeing is there's one screen on the Muse Monitor app that shows the different brain waves alpha, theta, delta, beta, gamma and it shows that I have some gamma waves going on and I really don't know if that means anything because I haven't compared so if I put that headband on somebody else and see that they have no gamma waves then maybe the fact that it shows that there's some gamma waves there for me means something. I don't know. Because I've talked a little bit before about how I feel like the insights might come from a gamma wave state. And I listened to somebody's podcast on the Neuroscience Summit. It was that guy from, it was that guy from the Law of Attraction, The Secret. I can't remember his name right now, but he was talking about the different brain waves and then he talked about gamma and then said, but I'm not going to talk about those when it seemed like those were the cool ones because it's about unity consciousness and blah, blah, blah. So I feel like transconscious people might have more brain space devoted to unity consciousness and less devoted to the ego. So the ego is more about beta waves, I think. I'm just making this stuff up for now. 
maybe at some point I'll actually look into it more. And then gamma is more about unity and blah blah blah. So I feel like my brain might be tapped into that and I don't know, but now I finally have this cool device that might actually be able to show that my brain isn't actually doing crappy abnormal things, it's actually doing some cool things. And I can't really prove that yet or anything because I don't have anything to compare it to and I don't really know what the data is talking about, but I very soon might. So it's kind of exciting. And it's exciting too because next time I go into a hyper insightful state, I'll be able to put that thing on my head and see what's going on in my brain. Or even if I do have some stress or something and then compare it to other brains and yeah, we'll see. And I do feel like all that time I practiced the power of now, it was able to get me into a really mindful state and perhaps some of my little meditation graphs might show that. So this is going to be a big part of my dialogue with myself because my brain can actually see what it's doing and then I have to learn the language of that to understand that more. But that is really interesting to me. This could actually be something really big. Maybe I'll learn that this type of headband is a way that people like me can really help see what's going on in their brain. It's really exciting. And I don't know if I talked about it, but some tools I'm adding to my arsenal. I bought a extra battery charge pack for my iPhone because the battery keeps dying really quickly. I think it's because I'm in a rural area and it, it its attempts to connect to the towers takes more juice as well as it's hot out so it's draining the battery faster. Plus it's getting old. I have worked this phone really, really, really hard this last year. I have made videos and and edited them and uploaded them and saved them and all these things. This has been a really good phone and I was actually looking at the rumors for the next release of the iPhone and it might not be until October so I might have three more months with this phone so I need that extra battery and that will give me some more mobility and the ability to just be outside and not have to go back somewhere to charge my phone. And that's part of omnipolar lifestyle design. Being able to be in touch with the moment and move with the moment. Not having to be at home waiting for a plug. And I'm also going to think of a business name. I'm just going to do it. I'm not going to ask permission of anyone or advice. I'm just going to learn along the way, even if it's really, really slow. Until next time, see willing possibilities. And yesterday, I also took a lot of steps. I went for a really, really long walk in a park, and it just felt really good. I felt really energized, and the day felt like a really long and rich day. So at some point, I'll get my butt up and get walking in this park. So much to do. So fascinating. I'm at the park because I don't really have any personal space right now and there are several things I want to talk about. 
but I feel a little bit discombobulated with it all because I take notes about what I want to talk about in my phone and then when I go out and about I only have my phone and so I can't really read off my notes or look at my notes as easily so I'm finding that my brain needs to get adapted to a new process because when I was in California I would just sit at my desk and look at my computer or look at my notebook so it was pretty simple but lately I've come across a couple of things that aren't really in my notebook or my personal notes as much as just things like a tweet. So I came across a tweet about an article writ written on madinamerica.com by Dr. Peter Bregan and he is someone who is a medical expert testifier for people who have been harmed by psychopharmaceutical drugs. And I've looked into some of his work, but I'm not going to go into that now. But I will go into the article he wrote just a little bit. It seems like he's going to be writing a series on this girl who allegedly is being charged with something to do with sending her boyfriend text messages so that he might kill himself. And then he did end his life, and now she's in big trouble. And I haven't been following this and I'm not trying to talk about it in order to say that I know what's going on at all because I don't. But there are certain parts in it that are really sad to me. And I did take a screenshot of one part that Dr. Peter Bregan wrote. So the article is basically to put a different side to the story because most people are really villainizing this young woman and what it seems like he's going to illustrate in these articles, this series of articles, and I read the first one, is that both these teenagers were on the same antidepressant when this all happened and I'm pretty sure he's going to point out that these kind of medications change us in ways that are not good. So, for example, taking any kind of psychopharmaceutical can actually cause suicide. But usually it's passed off as one's worsening of mental illness and their mental illness is what got the best of them not being on these psychopharmaceuticals. So he's going to be pointing to something around that type of theme that both of these young adults were on this type of med and this is what it led to. And I'm not going to go into all of that because that's what he's doing, that's his job. But I just want to quickly share with myself that it's really sad that They don't say, oh, this young person was on this antidepressant and this is partly what was causing this type of interaction and behavior and gestures between these two people that did lead to one of them ending their life. And he was on the med and he ended his life. So it's not like, oh, he was on an antidepressant and he ended his life. No, it's being passed off as all this young adult teenage drama leading to his death. And it's not true is what Dr. Peter Bregan is going to point to. 
but it's sad because if someone is on some kind of psychopharmaceutical and does something, they never say that it was the psychopharmaceutical, they say that it was the person. And they're trying to paint this really terrible picture of this girl in order to point to the fact that she's just terrible when that's not true. I'm pretty sure he's going to illustrate something about how she was doing better when she wasn't on that crap and then when she was on the crap eventually this kind of situation happened and and could she have actually made him do that? I don't know. I don't think that that's what he's going to point to. I think he's going to point to he was on the same type of drug and so that wasn't good and that might have led to him ending his life with or without somebody texting him something along those lines. And again, I don't know the details. I'm not going to get into that because I don't have the time. Dr. Peter Bregan's going to probably be putting out a lot of information about that. This is just more the part that resonates with me because actually in the video before I was talking about this very thing or maybe it wasn't this, maybe it was something else. I can't even remember and that's part of what is bothering me is I can't get any continuity to my conversation and just as soon as I think about something being able to just sit and talk about it or write it in a certain place, things are all over the place. So they'll probably be even less organized than they usually are. But I do want to talk about these things as they come up in daily life. And so that was one of them, and I took a screenshot of something Dr. Peter Bregan wrote, and maybe I'll just put that in when I edit the video and then do a little voiceover of reading it. That's probably the easiest way for me to remember to do that. And it's an article on madinamerica.com, Dr. Peter Bregan talking about this young woman, and I'll add in her name when I read this, because it's too much going between screens. Teenagers at the time, Michelle and Conrad, will be found enmeshed in and overwhelmed by forces beyond their understanding or control, a situation affecting countless other children, adolescents, and even many adults throughout the world today. Some of these victims are in jail, some are in mental hospitals or foster homes. Many endure persistent physical and mental harm, and many are dead. Meanwhile, the vast majority are surviving as best they can in their communities and families while trying to get on with school or jobs and their lives. Very few have any idea what has happened to them. Very few have any idea that their deteriorating quality of life is often due to the psychiatric medications they are receiving. Instead, with the drugs impairing their judgment, they mistakenly blame themselves and their, quote, mental illness. Even fewer have anyone to tell their stories, as I will try my best to do in this series. The story of Michelle Carter has not been told in the mainstream media. Like so many other victims of psychiatry, the tragic results of the wide-scale drugging of our children and adults goes unnoticed. I hope to rectify this situation. I really like what Dr. Peter Bregan is saying there, as tragic as it is, because he's one of the few people out there pointing to the fact that there's so much harm caused from these medications that are passed off as worsening of one's illness. And I've talked about this a lot with myself, how if there are any improvements, well, it's the medication, but if there's any 
anything that gets worse, it's just worsening of one's illness. And I don't like that at all. And then the thing that I did come across that was something I was talking about in previous videos for sure was how something about how they don't generally do trials where people hi, hi. that's a big dog yeah. <laughs> I was talking about and I don't remember exactly why but I was talking about how oh yeah it's because it was because of that cognitive remediation conference that I heard about on a tweet how they're talking about how there's so many cognitive deficits as a result of people's so so-called mental illness and psychotic disorders but they never do a trial where they put somebody on the psychotropics for 10 years who doesn't have a mental illness and sees what happens to their cognition so that was one of my criticisms of that um, so the next day or whenever I came across a tweet I came across an article, probably just following a link from the Mad in America article I read by Dr. Peter Bregan, by this other woman who was saying that they don't do placebo-controlled trials when they study a lot of these antipsychotics. They just do a group that are medicated. It says, despite their efforts to collect rigorous randomized controlled trials on antipsychotics, this study did not identify a single placebo-controlled study on individuals with first-episode psychosis. So they're talking in the article a little bit about how there's no placebo control partly because they're afraid that the effect of the placebo will be really high, so then it won't show as much percentage of improvement. So it looks like in this study, they identified that there was a large placebo effect in chronic patients, so they needed to discover if there was such an effect in first episode psychosis, and that's what this bottom passage here points to. So if they do a study and there's 50% improvement, for example, and they do no placebo, it looks like, wow, there's 50% improvement. But if they do another study and there's a placebo and there's 30% improvement on the placebo, well, now they only have 20% improvement. That's just a tiny illustration of that. So they're saying, oh, they don't want to do that because they don't want to show the effects of the placebo or that high, and then it makes their stats less. I also feel like... Not only that, they need to do a study where they give people who don't have a mental illness label some of the medication to see all the detrimental effects. So then those effects that are detrimental can be categorized so they're not attributed to worsening of one's mental illness being on the drug. It's actually being on the drug is making things a lot worse. So the side effects. And they do keep track of the side effects for sure, but... I feel there's a lot of side effects that aren't actually side effects. They're just really bad effects of the meds, and those are still passed off as worsening as one of one's mental illness. Worst case scenario being someone who ends their life by suicide, and then, oh, it was worsening of their mental illness. We don't know if they were on the drug, if it was an effect of the drug or not.
Now, if you give a bunch of people who don't have any mental health concerns this drug for a long period of time, or a certain period of time, and see how many people have suicidal thoughts, well, you might actually see how much of the med is actually just causing that. But that wouldn't even be an ethical study. I feel it's also they don't want to do a placebo group because there might be some improvement, so-called placebo, but it will also show that the group that doesn't get the toxic drug won't have all these terrible, awful side effects. And they don't want to show a group not taking it so then they don't have as many side effects because they're not taking it. Maybe they'll have some because they're placebo type side effects. But they don't want to actually show that it's basically not ethical to give anyone these drugs for a long period of time because of how bad the side effects are, which you would be able to see more if there was actually a placebo group. So I think their motive for not doing placebos isn't just they don't want to show the placebo effect and that their drugs are less effective. I feel like they also don't want to show all the terrible side effects. Someone might have a 30% placebo benefit and then have zero side effects, whereas somebody might have a 50% medication effect, but then have 50% side effects. So then all of a sudden it'll show even more so that taking these drugs is really not good. So I think they're afraid to do placebos. Plus, if somebody has a label of so-called schizophrenia or something, they don't want to ever indicate that somebody should ever be on a placebo. Meaning, if you have that label, you should be drugged 100%. It's not a question of drug or no drug and seeing the difference. It's you have to be drugged. So they don't want to have any kind of indication of anyone with a label having a chance to see how they do without the drug. Because imagine if people did okay without the drug. Now that's going to show again that these drugs aren't as necessary as they're being purported to be. Plus, it'll show how much more harmful they are. So there's a lot of reasons I feel like they don't want to do a placebo control group. And from their perspective, they would probably just think it's unethical to not medicate somebody who has this kind of so-called severe and persistent mental illness because they just think that that's the first line of defense and that's how it should be. So they don't want to do anything to jeopardize that perspective of always medicate all the time from day one of a diagnosis. They don't even want to do a study. They don't even want to risk doing a study where somebody is given the option to not take the drugs and have a placebo. Because then it might just show, oh, you can just take a sugar pill and you'll just be fine in a couple weeks or a couple months. Um, yeah, so they don't want to give any data on placebos. There's studies out there showing that being on antipsychotics long term is very bad. And two weeks max is really the ideal. So if they start doing a study where someone's allowed to be on a placebo for a month or two, and then they're fine, or, or doing okay after the second month, that will really show that people don't need these drugs as much. So they're afraid of doing a placebo for many, many reasons. So this study is actually for first break or first episode psychosis, and they have done placebos for supposed chronic patients. So they haven't so much for first break, 
And I feel like if they were to do that, they may as well do a Soteria House type study. Because Soteria House model is where people don't get medicated on first break psychosis. And they're given other supports and allowed to move through the process. And a lot of them are able to go through it without any medical intervention of that kind. And they do a lot better. So I can see that might be a reason why they don't want to entertain that idea of not giving a drug for first break. Because the way it's designed now is just given right away, no questions asked. Because if there were certain results shown that I just talked about, then people would have to be given the option when they go into the hospital, okay, we're going to put you on these meds for two weeks max, or maybe you don't want to go on them at all. Maybe we'll just provide you safe space to move through the energies that are going through you. But no, they just want to put everybody on a drug from day one who has any kind of psychotic disorder as they see it. But that pissed me off about that. And then I came across another tweet that had a link to a study called something about effective self-management strategies for people with bipolar disorder. Something something community Delphi study. And I'll put a few screenshots and do some voiceover commentary later. Effective self-management strategies for bipolar disorder. A community-engaged Delphi consensus consultation study. But I thought it was interesting that of all the data they collected, they mentioned a few times, I feel they did at least, that some of the biggest ones were never running out of medication, getting proper sleep and rest, and identifying early warning signs. They say that's what people with bipolar disorder said. It just amazes me that they have to do a study from 2012 until 2016 to find out these little bits of information that you could get out of any textbook. And how convenient that they point out that it's people with bipolar disorder themselves that say never run out of medication is one of the most important things. Not even the healthcare provider said that. And it was interesting, I thought, that they pointed this out. Because I feel like any time a researcher does this kind of study, they're always going to pick out the ones that they want to send the message about. Because for me, stopping medication permanently has been the biggest gift in my life in recent times. I don't know if it'll be permanently as in going on forever, but knowing that I can discontinue medications. So for them to send a message, just never stop your medication, and that's a good way to not have a so-called mania, is still in a very, very limited framework. So it just sounds like it really suits the message they're always trying to send, which is take your meds, just get adequate rest and sleep, as if that is easy. It's not easy for people who don't have a label sometimes and they have to take sleep meds. And just watch out for early warning signs. Though they did mention that 
uh, hypervigilance can develop and then that is actually counterproductive. So it was an interesting read. I don't know how much I want to actually read scientific studies. I found it slightly annoying the way they talk about people like us. Like talking about wow, like self-management could actually be something that's good for people like this. They might actually be able to help themselves a little bit. Imagine that. There's not really any research on this. There's only research on us putting on all these clinical and medical interventions on people and seeing how that helps. Wow, imagine if we actually talk to some people and see how they're managing without all our expert help as if all the expert help is such a huge part of one's life. We see a doctor for a couple minutes a month and we pop pills a couple minutes a month. The rest is all us. So, I don't know, it just seems very demeaning, the tone of it all. Many bipolar disorder publications begin with so-called bipolar misery statistics. Speaking to the considerable disability and dysfunction associated with the condition, indeed, most data in the field paint a bleak picture even optimal medication management fails to ward off mood episodes in many living with bipolar disorder, a mood disorder frequently characterized by high rates of relapse and hospitalization. It's interesting to me how this study itself starts off by talking about how most publications on bipolar disorder start off with these bipolar misery statistics, speaking about our disability and our dysfunction associated with our condition. And at least they speak some truth when they say even optimal medication management fails to ward off so-called mood episodes. It's really sad how clinicians and researchers are talking about us. I don't think it's a good representation of our lives. Maybe we could start a bipolar journal from a lived experience perspective and crowd out some of these memes of talking about us in all these defective ways. I highly doubt that we would write stuff like that about ourselves, but maybe we would because we're so programmed to believe all that crap. So I'll read a few of my favorite sentences when I do the voiceover thing. And this part talks about our increase risk of suicide that we lose on average nine years of our life. It could be more like 25 according to other studies. And look how demoralizing this part is. It talks about how we might flourish more with more psychosocial interventions, but they're frequently underutilized in part because of inaccessibility, skepticism about particular interventions, lack of perceived need for treatment, self-stigma, lack of insight, and preference for self-management. One of my favorites, lack of insight. Just listen to how they're talking about us. That is just ridiculous. If I had a proper office set up, I would just print it and then read it on video right now but I just don't have anything set up and I'm feeling a bit frustrated by that because I feel like I can't wait I can't stop the momentum of this even all the beautiful weather that is eventually going to end here isn't enough to convince me to just go out and enjoy the sunshine and it's really smoky because there's forest fires so still I just need to keep talking about this stuff and 
also get organized to start to be able to share some of it because one day this conversation will be obsolete. People won't be thinking about themselves in these kind of ways at all and people will be able to self-direct and so it won't actually be that interesting to hear somebody talking about self-directing themselves away from conventional medicine and psychiatry regarding these types of things because one day it'll be really different and part of this is perhaps to play a role in some of that difference to allow people like me who have been labeled and pathologized and called defective and have all these papers written about their brains in these clinical and degrading terms to have that change somehow and yeah so I got to get with it but partly it's just I need to be organized or I'll just be all over the place with it and it could actually lead to getting a little bit out of touch with reality if I don't keep myself organized. And that was the other thing that I wanted to talk about regarding this Delphi study was this whole self-dialogue that I've been doing with myself for this last over a year has been a journey of so-called self-management and I wouldn't call it management I'm not managing myself I'm living my life and I feel like putting everything in terms of self-management is also very oppressive we're not just living our lives to manage our lives we need to live our lives and by talking to myself in self-dialogue this has actually been my self-management in quote um, process and it's also been my self-directed process and it's also been my self-care in a way and being able to give voice to all the things that I feel that I want to and that's the thing with this type of brain propensity is one has a lot to say and so yeah, I doubt that anyone put on that list that they self-manage by talking to themselves on video for hours a day. But it is a way to self-direct and by doing this process I've been able to make my own decisions about leaving that job in peer support, living my dream of going to California, tapering off medications and talking about that whole process and now being off of medications and I kind of feel that sense that I was feeling that once I'm off meds it's something I don't even think about. I just take my daily essential nutrients and the amino acids and the vitamin C and I feel fine. It's more just struggling with situational things like not having space to continue to have this dialogue with myself to the same extent and I'm kind of protective of that because it has been such a helpful process. And I kind of felt like now I'm noticing tweets and reading them and I have along the way too but there's been several lately that I've read and then clicked on. Another one is someone named Natasha Tracy and I see her as the opposite of myself. She's very into the clinical perspective of her condition and she has every right to be and I've noticed two of her articles lately saying one that she's hanging on for dear life waiting for a medication to kick in to 
make her feel some kind of relief. And then another one recently saying that she's considering taking an experimental drug that isn't even indicated for bipolar disorder. She's just going to take it because trying something is better than doing nothing. And I feel kind of sad for this person because she's stuck in the worst of it. And one of her articles outlines how many med changes she's had and how many rounds of electroconvulsive therapy, ECT she's had, and so many different things. And she says she doesn't really experience dysthymia, which is apparently any kind of, some kind of, um, what it would it be? Some kind of relief. It's always something there, always some kind of suffering and pain and, and symptomology or something. And that's really sad because I would feel in my sense and my journey that luckily I experienced probably 95% dysthymia, if you want to call it that. I'm in dysthymia right now, whatever that means. It means I'm living my life, I'm me, and so yeah, I just feel really sad for this person. I actually saw her speak live one time and she criticized her mother for trying to show her that she might be able to use micronutrients. And I found that interesting. And I guess they didn't work for her. They don't work for everybody. And so she was openly critical about them and then something happened as a result of that. So she's very critical of some of the pokusy pokusy things that I actually am very open to and find extremely helpful and to each their own but I just feel sort of sad because she's really really suffering and yeah it sounds like she's run out of medication options so now she's considering some kind of med for something that has nothing to do with bipolar disorder but it might just be a miracle for a certain period of time. So yeah, there's all different journeys and all different paths and I'm glad I'm on the one that I am. So those are some of the things that I wanted to talk about and there's also a bunch of commentary I want to add when I look at those screenshots that I took even just reading them a bit and yeah that doesn't even get me started on the few little bits of information and data I have with the Muse brain sensing headband and I'm kind of excited about this because people like me with a label of bipolar disorder we're told we have defective brains We're told, maybe I'll start a new video so this isn't confusing. Here are some of the strategies from the Delphi study. Enjoy.
now that I've talked about some of the tweets that I've read lately, and I never go into the details about them, I just go into extrapolating it to my own context that I've created with myself, because other people are doing details on certain things, and I'm doing details on certain things, and relating a few of their details to my details, but not going into it fully. Something that I feel like I will go into more is this exploration with this Muse brain sensing headband. And I'm pretty excited about it, and I want to share a few of my preliminary findings. And I don't even know if they're findings at all, it's just looking at what it's showing and making stuff up. That's what I do. I make stuff up to create my own understanding and also find the facts that I need at the same time. And so what I really like about this brain headband is that it gives me a chance to look at what my brain is doing. So as somebody with a label of bipolar disorder, I've been told a lot of things about my brain directly or indirectly through the studies I read, just all the messages out there about how defective the brain is, how how it's going to get worse over time, how so many things I've been told about my brain and other people are being told about their brain. But now we actually have a chance to look at what our brain is doing. And that to me is really cool. So I've actually thought of quite a few different ways that I can utilize this to see what's happening. For example, I wonder if the brain has any kind of response when holding a psych med. So I don't want to actually eat it. But there's something called applied kinesiology or muscle testing where you can test if a substance makes you go weak or strong using your muscle reflex or using this kind of test. Like if I say Seroquel and I think of Seroquel, I can't actually keep my two fingers together here when I pull the other ones through. But if I say or feel or think um, of the Hardy Nutritionals product, I can't actually pull through and that's just thinking about it. I'm not holding it, but another way is to actually hold it and get somebody to push down on your arm to see if there's a strong or a weak response. And they do this kind of demonstration sometimes in self-esteem workshops. I'm just making that up. So you can actually think really mean thoughts about yourself and then do this muscle test and you'll be weak. It makes your nervous system weak. It makes your whole body weak, what you're holding in mind. And then do happy thoughts and then your body goes strong. So I'm wondering if there will be any kind of brain response to thinking about or holding these medications. And this headband might not be sensitive enough to pick that up. It just has a couple of electrode points. So it's still not necessarily comprehensive, but it at least gives me a chance to look at my brain. It's like my brain looking at my brain. And this whole process of self-dialogue has been my brain talking to my brain and the brain talking to itself more and more and more. So now it's giving another way to look and have language around looking at the brain. And 
I've discovered a few little things already, and I don't know if they're true, but I'm just going to go along with the discoveries and revise them as I go. Just like along the way, I revise the way I talk to myself, or I think about things, or I consider things. It's an ongoing and evolving thing, and I'm not going to get stuck on anything in particular. So I already had a video showing a few of the screenshots of the information that is shown when I put on the Muse headband using the Muse Monitor app, which shows the raw data. And I'm going to have to get a copy of Excel for Mac so I can graph some of this data. Another thing I have to do is try this on another person to see if their peaks are different than mine. So that's something that I noticed is that I have these same peaks when I was inside sitting in my room. There were these same peaks in the beta range and the gamma range and I made a little side by side to show those peaks. But what I also wanted to show with this, I was really curious and I noticed there is a peak at 60 hertz and 60 hertz is actually the EMF frequency in North America in all the plugs and everything. So I was wondering, well, is that showing up because of the EMF, because I was inside? So I went outside and sat outside and sure enough, that peak disappeared. So that isn't one of my brainwaves, but the other ones are still there. So I made a little side by side to show that. So that was my first little experiment in a way, was being outside, there is no 60 hertz peak, but then the other ones are still there, so I'm wondering if that's sort of my little brain fingerprint in a way. And so now I want to try this on somebody else and see if they have different peaks in beta and gamma. And I'm kind of wondering if they'll have any gamma, because I was kind of predicting that my brain has some access to gamma states as part of this map consciousness thing. So I need to try it on someone else to see if they have gamma waves or not. They sure could. I'm just wondering. And that's nothing like this big trial to see exactly what it all means. But I'll do some of my own little experiments when I can. And then after that, I will look more at what this information is telling me because I can know something of what the information is telling me just by doing some comparisons and then another thing that I noticed was I went to a park and put the headband on it's like a good it is isn't it yeah 
And I noticed at first the one graph seemed pretty ubiquitous throughout with wiggly lines. There are no real distinguishable peaks. But it also showed more delta activity. The red line representing delta is much, much higher. So it seems like being outside, the brain has more delta and alpha activity going on. And there weren't really any peaks in the beta or gamma. It was almost like just being outside. I was nothing. I wasn't this human brain with all these little peaks and things going on. It was like consistent with nature. Like I was one with nature. And I don't know if that's true. And then after sitting out for a while, there were some gamma and beta peaks that were the same as the ones that have been shown earlier. They just had a lower amplitude. So I'll show that as well. And there was also this other screenshot. Um, one is the first day that I had the headband, and the next is when I was outside in the park, and the delta is just way higher. You'll notice that the red line, which is delta, is way higher than when I was just sitting inside. So to me, this is right away showing something very important, that my brain has more alpha and delta and theta, I think. And then I noticed after I was sitting in the park for a little while, the orange gamma line actually went higher than the beta. And that was the only time I've seen that. So it was like being outside for a period of time causes a suppression in the beta, which is more associated with thinking and cognition and the ego stuff. And then there was more gamma and a lot more delta. So just seeing this basic thing, being able to see my brain waves, is showing me 
how much better it is for me to be outside. And I felt a lot more well-being being outside as well. So it could be, for me personally, my brain is saying, be outside. There's more delta, there's less beta, there's more gamma. The gamma is actually higher than the beta in terms of the decibels. And I don't even know what all this stuff means exactly, but just having a basic understanding of some science, because I do have that background somewhat, it's just obvious to be indoors and have more of something and then be outdoors and have more of something else, like the delta. The delta was never that high when I was indoors. So since our brains aren't separate, they're part of everything, being out in nature is just giving the brain access to completely different brain waves. Yet those peaks did come back of the beta and gamma with much less amplitude and they were also bouncing up and down more. When I was inside they would just stay up but when I was outside they were sort of more rhythmic like resting back down and then going back to the peak. So that was kind of cool too to see that it's not like this hyper alertness. Those peaks do subside and sort of breathe in and out like a wave as opposed to just always being on. So to me, this is telling me a lot about my brain already. So I do want to see if other people have gamma waves or how this works if people have different peaks as sort of a brain fingerprint and seeing if the effects of being outside are similar so this might actually give us, as someone with some kind of mental illness label, saying that we're deficient, 
ways to see where our brain is happiest. So if we have one of these devices and we can go around and say, oh, my brain likes this. Oh, my brain doesn't like that. Oh, it likes this. Oh, it likes that. Then we have a clearer picture than just say, maybe our ego pleasurable likes. For example, I might think, well, I just love to be at home watching TV, but then my brain doesn't seem to like it. And I feel too lazy to get out in nature, but then the brain feels a lot more calm. So going based on brain waves might be something really interesting. And I already know subjectively that being outside is really good for me. And now it seems like having those more relaxed brain waves happening shows that it is really good for me. So I think this is really cool. I might be able to show this to some of my friends and go around and map out where people's brains are happiest. So this is partly why I feel like I need my own little research laboratory. And maybe I don't really. Maybe just checking certain times and places and seeing what my brain is doing is enough. But it would be cool also to use it to show the brain is not defective. It just maybe doesn't like certain things that are deemed normal in society, like being indoors most of the time. So I can't wait for my little external battery pack to arrive because then I can just stay in the park all day. Right now my phone battery is probably low and I want to walk around the park and I don't want to run out of battery while doing so. I just thought of a language translation while walking, so I figured I may as well extrapolate on the go. And I was thinking about the term bipolar disorder, and I would transform that to bipolar diff order. Diff standing for different, because it is a different order. It's not necessarily a disorder, but the brain gets in touch with a different order of operation, a different algorithm than the one it has been conditioned and programmed to utilize as its mode of operating through the world. And when that happens, it can feel a little chaotic, but by acknowledging that it's something of a different order, then we're invited to explore and understand and discover, not just manage and fit back in and recover. So that's why I feel like it could be called bipolar disorder. And I would call it omnipolar disorder because it's not just bi. It's not just up and down. Those who would observe us, like psychiatrists and clinicians, would ask us to say, well, are you elevated or are you depressed? They just want to know if we're up and down. But really, it's rich. It's omnipolar. It's not bi-directional. And when we begin to discover for ourselves, then we realize that our brain is operating in an omnipolar diff order. And we can discover the richness in each moment. Non-linear and non-local. My vision is not focal. Don't tell me to focus. It's a bunch of hocus pocus. Don't try to manage me. You'll only damage me. There really is no me. If only you could see. I had another insight that people aren't bipolar, but perhaps thought is bipolar. Meaning that thoughts are either good or bad.
or pleasurable or painful. Of course, they can be functional, which is a different category, but the thoughts that apply to the me. So the me is just a bunch of thoughts. But we are not our thoughts if one takes the time to delve into teachers such as Eckhart Tolle. So can we disidentify from thought altogether as it pertains to the me, not try to get thoughts in order? As long as we have thought in operation as our primary driver, then yeah, we could be subject to this good and bad being superimposed on it. Can we take that judgment away of good and bad and just ride the waves of energy, whether it be thought or some other rich dimension of being human? listening to Bipolar Inquiry. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember, use your voice, craft your consciousness, embody your potential, enter a quantum paradigm. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information in this show is not medical advice. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.